Ezra was such a city dog. He was born in Queens, and we adopted him at an ASPCA shelter on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. A lab pit ball mix, he was a sweetie to nearly everyone on the street, except if you wore a hat or were on wheels. He would freak out on rollerbladers, skateboarders, and anyone running by in their sneakers, pulling on his leash and barking bloody murder. Once outside Murray's Bagels in Chelsea, while Brian was inside, a guy rollerbladed by and Ezra pulled an entire bench down 8th Avenue chasing him. Doggy daycare in the city was a regular and pricey part of our lives. Three mornings a week, we'd walk Ezra over to Paws and Chelsea on 24th Street, where Sherry and the crew looked after him until 7 p.m., playing in cageless rooms where the dogs were organized less by breed and more by temperament. The other two days, Ezra had Michael the dog walker, who would pick him up twice a day for a walk with a pack of another six or seven dogs. I got to know most of the dogs, and we would get Polaroids of the pack several times a year to put on the fridge. Michael was a real character, always carrying a heavy book and a devout libertarian. He was evasive about health insurance and only took cash. I was always offended at people that scoffed at raising dogs in the city that it was, well, somehow mean to them or something, as if dogs could only operate and be happy in the wild, wild open where they could roll in the mud, get stuck in bushes, get Lyme disease, get lost, or be in danger from coyotes or bears. See episode 35. Believe me, Ezra had a great life in New York. He got plenty of exercise, even if we had to make a point of it, taking him to parks, the mini dog runs, or paying Michael for extra walks. I did worry about cars, though, and since he was also the most beautiful dog in the world, I worried about someone dog-napping him. There were flyers on telephone poles for several weeks, warning of dog-nappings, and I was on high alert. Ezra did get upstate a bit, though, to visit his grandparents, and during our rentals, see episode 2, Finding Your Town. One place he frolicked very often was Stottsburg, the historic Mills Mansion that looks a lot like an American Downton Abbey. At Mills Mansion, you can access the river directly because the train is behind the house instead of along the river in front of it. That's the difference between being rich and being wealthy. When you're wealthy, the train bends for your view. After we lost Ezra, we had a dog shiv at the apartment. Sherry, Michael, and everyone that cared for him came over and we sat in our living room and talked all about him. Afterwards, Brian and I quietly drove the box with his ashes up to Stottsburg, where I prepared a funeral service with a few prayers expressly written for pets. On this very cold day, we arrived at the mansion, parked the car, and walked down to the river. While I started the first prayer, Brian fiddled with the red box that Ezra's ashes were in. And instead of the tears I expected and planned for, I saw Brian's face become visibly frustrated. The box was soldered shut. Clearly, Ezra didn't want to come out of his small box and go into the wide-open Hudson River. He didn't seem to want to join the stunning, unpredictable nature of this rural area among birds, cows, ducks, and sheep. That had become our new habitat, not his. The box was Ezra's studio apartment, where he was most comfortable. And that is where he wanted to be. City Dog. I'm Matt Zucker, and this is Cityit, learning to live and love life in the Hudson Valley. We've talked about animals in episode 35, and chickens, as you know, in episode 44. But today's episode is about domesticated pets in the country. One of the first things I noticed is that there are outside pets, and there are indoor pets. For example, the sheep farm next door has a dog they keep outside 
all year in a fenced-in pen with his own doghouse. I don't know if this dog has a name, but he's clearly a protection dog, protecting their flock of sheep, warding off coyotes or intruders. They also have a dog inside the house who seems more pet-like, and I know he has a name. I don't know if the dog outside and inside have any kind of relationship between each other, but I do imagine that they're both proud of what they have and do, and probably very jealous of each other. On Ben Franklin's World podcast, I learned about pets in early America. Pets were common then. Breeds, however, then, were more about the purpose a pet would have and serve. So there would be work animals or ones you would well eat. For work animals, like horses and dogs, the types were hounds as hunting dogs, or mastiffs, which were famously good guard dogs. Lap dogs, like we know today, were literally known as useless dogs because they were luxuries that didn't have a job. While you'd think cats would be the next popular pet in early America, squirrels actually had that spot. I don't get it. Squirrels seem so nasty and hard to capture. They steal birdseed from our birdhouse restaurant on the porch. I hate squirrels. Cats have grown in popularity, of course, both indoor and outdoor. My friend Ron brought his cats, Steve and Ertha, up from the city, and they are indoors only, and seem to have adapted well. The cats in the farm next door don't seem like pets. They live mostly in the sheep barn or outside hanging out on bales of hay. I once asked the farmer's wife all about them, and she was not happy about the cats. People constantly drop off unwanted cats, she complained. They think, oh, a farm will want them, and then she ends up having to feed all these cats. Now, they do hunt down mice, which is good, but they also spawn more cats. And for us, they sneak into our yard and freak out Nora, who is not a fan of cats, much less anyone else on our property. Nora doesn't have a job per se, but it's more of a paid internship, I guess. She follows me every day to the workshop I've turned into an office. She's very active on Zoom calls, demanding a treat exactly whenever I'm presenting to a client. She also greets Luke the mailman every day at 4 p.m. with barks and anyone else who pulls up or bikes by. Nora's definitely a country dog. She had a few months earlier in her life in the city with us, spending weekdays at Pet City, which was incredibly in our building. But then we started to keep her up here, even as we still commuted a bit. And since October 2019, we've all been full-time. When we do leave overnight, there's daycare and overnight care options. What I love is that it's not only half the price as the city, which it is, but when we'd leave her up here to go to the city, she'd stay on, say, a big property or a farm or a kennel. We'd drop her off with her own food, and there'll always be other dogs to play with. There are pros and cons, of course, for the dog in the country. The space and smells are amazing, but there's danger everywhere for everyone. The first years, Nora would chase chickens on the loose from next door and probably, well, wouldn't have exactly had mercy on them if she'd actually caught a chicken with her mouth, just dreading it. We also have to check her constantly for ticks and Lyme disease. And while Nora sticks close to the house, she likes to dig and go under things. Just last week, she got stuck under the house, getting herself into a corner under the porch that she couldn't get back out under from. I think she used to go there when she was much smaller, so squeezing in and out at her current bigger size must have been harder. And she is bigger. Chuck Mead at the orchard said to me the other day with a wink that he thought Nora had gained her COVID-10. Brian and I took turns climbing underneath the porch to rescue her, over to the corner where she was stuck. We helpfully screamed at each other about what we should do, who we should call, and whose fault it was. Finally, using a garden shovel, I tried to dig out some dirt in the ground to create more headroom for her, which I thought was very clever three-dimensional thinking, but it didn't work. She just cowered in the corner, frustrated and afraid. Eventually, Brian wooed her out by the collar, and now I've blocked up the entrance temporarily with some old fencing. 
Mud, water, and various dead animal carcasses on the ground are also a constant companion, and they stick to dog fur, so you also learn to keep a hose outside for easy and frequent washing. One thing that was clearly better in the city was Nora's social life. There were just far more dogs to play with, and she'd see them more frequently. She's really happiest with other dogs around, so we've been working harder to find other dogs for her to play with, go on hikes with, and be around. Obviously, the answer is a second dog, but we haven't gone through with that. Well, yet. In the meantime, we can frequent dog-friendly places like Burger Hill and Rhinebeck, which is amazing for people and dogs. There are also dog runs in some towns like Germantown and Red Hook. And of course, we take her weekly to Claremont Historical Site, where she knows the lawns and paths well. And now we've learned of a new place to take her, not far in Millerton, which I'm happy to share with you. This episode of City is lucky to be sponsored by Ledgewood Kennel, a premier full-service pet facility in Millerton, New York, serving New York State, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. For dogs, cats, birds, fish, and ferrets, Ledgewood offers boarding, grooming, doggy daycare and training, and get this, a pool for dogs. The pool is also part of a growing international sport of dock diving, in which, get this, dogs compete in jumping for distance, height, and speed retrieval. You may have seen Ledgewood host competitions on the CBS Early Show. I need to watch videos of dogs dock diving. Plus, with competitive rates, early access to the city, Ledgewood Kennel sits on a large working form with open land and beautiful views. Planning your first trips post-pandemic? Doing a getaway and can't bring the dog or cat? Visit LedgewoodKennel.com and tell them City at sent you. Now back to the episode. You've heard me talk about Nora's favorite dog store, Paws Dog Boutique in Rhinebeck. It's run by a woman named Sammy, who I've gotten to know, and the store was first in Rhinebeck, moved to Red Hook Village, and now back is in Rhinebeck in a great spot, right across from Oblong Books and Terrapin Restaurant. She's the only one I know who sells these delicious beef and chicken woofer crisps that Nora loves. Plus, it's fun to go someone where you know the people. I asked Sammy what customers most often ask her, and she didn't hesitate before saying, it's all about pickiness and food. Yup, 85% of questions that she's asked all around people's dogs not eating and what should they do. Her take is simple. It's basically our fault, the dog owners. Usually we make the problem happen and we don't realize it. The dog doesn't eat it first day and we panic, thinking it's a choice or worse, a medical issue. We keep trying new foods and the dog learns to love and expect novelty. Sammy's advice is pretty straightforward. Pick your food base. You might base it on a point, price point, or consider quality. Pick a brand you trust. Look for a protein, and yes, sometimes there's allergies to consider. But pick what you're comfortable picking. Now go put it out. Wait, does the dog eat or not? Give it 10 minutes, and if nothing happens, pick it up. Yep, really, pick the food back up. Bring it back later at dinner, and wait another 10 minutes. If the dog doesn't eat, pick it up. You can repeat this for a maximum three to four days. I was mortified, and I told Sammy I didn't think I could do it. Nora will starve. She shook her head at me. Matt, dogs will never starve themselves, which she said, which of course is true. The consequences of not following these directions are pretty common, and of course Brian and I know it well. If you keep changing food, they start to realize if they hold out, 
they'll get something novel, maybe a different flavor, beef, pork, then maybe duck, scrambled eggs. Then people start cooking from scratch for their dog, which of course Brian and I do all the time for Nora. Fresh beef, organic chicken. They're trying to break you, Sammy notes, saying this to someone who's clearly already broken. Now you can't save me from, from Nora's appetite and her love of novelty, but if you're listening to this and you have a pet, well, you can save you. Speaking of eating, now you're in for a treat. From my content partner, the Chicken Librarian, and her great homesteading blog for the homemade life. Hey, Annalie, who's a good girl? Who's the best girl ever? Are you a good girl? Yes, you are. You're such a good girl. Do you want a good girl treat? Hey, idiots. It's Krista from Chicken Librarian here. I want to share something special with you. Are you concerned about the health of your beloved four-legged friend? You go to great lengths to make sure they are well cared for. You exercise with your friend, go on long walks or hikes together in the Hudson Valley. You watch what they eat. What about treats? All those added ingredients got you down? Well, have I got the answer for you. How about making a simple dog treat for your beloved? All you need are a few simple ingredients, such as farm fresh eggs, peanut butter, and flour, and then you can make a simple dog treat that's wholesome and you won't feel guilty for overindulging your pooch. So grab your ingredients and then head over to chickenlibrarian.com to find out how to make these treats in 30 minutes or less. And then the next time you're out on the trails with Fido, or Annalie in my case, all you need is one of these yummy treats and they'll be begging you for more. So follow Annalie's advice and head on over to chickenlibrarian.com to find out more. Actually, I have a second recipe for you. You've heard me talk about coyotes, which are indeed scary, and Nora will shake in her boots if she hears them, as will I. A more frequent danger, however, is more cosmetic than life-threatening. Skunks. On our road, I'll see them frequently wandering down the road into our garden like it's Pepe Le Pew on his way to get a baguette. It's bad enough when Nora rolls about in some animal scat and we have to hit the hose with her, though Brian usually takes care of that. But getting skunked? It's the worst. My college friend Janelle, who lives in Dutchess County, shared in our Facebook group her de-skunking recipe, experienced from many run-ins over the year with her dogs. Note that if your dog does get skunked, you're not supposed to just spray the dog with water. It's not safe. Here is Janelle's recipe. One quart hydrogen peroxide, one quarter cup baking soda, and one to two teaspoons of Dawn or Dial dish soap. Use as you would shampoo, then follow up with a second bath with your normal shampoo. Avoid their eyes and ears, of course, and don't leave the mixture on too long. Air dry. Most likely, there will still be a faint scent, just depending on how good the dousing was from the skunk, but this is a tried-and-true recipe. Thanks, Janelle. Thanks for listening, Asidiot. For our friend the Chicken Librarian's homemade recipe for dog treats, head over to her blog at chickenlibrarian.com slash dog hyphen treats, and you'll find a delicious, healthy, homemade recipe that she created for her, Annalie, and posted for us. This will surely not be the only episode on pets, you know that. On Facebook and Instagram, though, I asked idiots for some pet photos and got some hilarious ones, including of hardworking country dog Vinny in Germantown, New York, whose mom, Janine, sent photos of him, including riding co-captain in a tractor. Thanks, Janine. I'm Matt Zucker, and Nora knows I've been talking about her, so we're going to head outside for a walk on our trails by the creek. I hope you're enjoying spring, 
that your tulips are blooming and come visit 